I'm Genevieve Costigan, and this is Talking Teaching. You know, black fellows, we're, we're very patient. I guess we're willing to wait for non-Indigenous Australia to kind of wake up to what needs to be done and to take the steps. But then we're also getting impatient because there's kind of this pivotal moment at this point of time where change is possible and we need to kind of ignite non-Indigenous people to learn so that change can actually happen. We want to make sure that Indigenous voices are heard um, and, and different diverse voices are heard, but our current system doesn't allow for that. And I just think it's a really good time for us to yeah, start thinking about preparing students for a, for a world far greater than, than what we're experiencing at the moment. In the last few decades in Australia, there has been increasing recognition of the need to acknowledge the critical importance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's history, knowledge and place in this country. While there has been progress in recognition and representation of Indigenous people in art, music, education, business and politics, is there similar progress in our schools and in our curriculums? Are the next generation of young Australians better educated and better able to understand Indigenous knowledges and address the challenges and benefits of reconciliation? In this episode, I speak to Dr. Melita Hogarth, the new Assistant Dean Indigenous at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. Melita is a Kamilaroi woman who worked for over 20 years in Queensland schools before moving into academia. She credits her shift to higher education to her Year 10 class, who set her the challenge of changing the kind of Indigenous education that is provided to students by going to teach the teachers. I also chat with Josh Cabillo, a Larrakia man who was educated on country in Darwin and was inspired by his education to become a teacher himself. Thanks for joining us today on Talking Teaching, Melita. You're welcome, Genevieve. So I'd like to start with asking you, going not way back, but going back a little way, what your experience was like when you were a student at school. So I, I went to school in a, a small country town in um, rural Queensland where predominantly the, the students obviously were non-Indigenous and also the children of um, quite well-off farming communities and families. I guess for me, I always wanted to be a teacher. There was, there was never um, a question mark as to where I was going to end up. I told my parents from the age of five that I was going to university and that I was going to be a teacher. I don't know where um, that came from. Um, I don't think many five-year-olds know about university. (laughs) So when you became a teacher, were you happy with being a teacher? Was it all that you thought it would be? I loved teaching. Um, And yeah, it was. It was everything I wanted to be and more because it took the pressure off of um, family expectations of having kids because I had 30 kids every 45 minutes. And and every single one of those kids that came into my classroom became my kids. Um, it was all about the rapport and relationships that I'd built with them. Yeah, I loved teaching. I love negotiating with teenagers about doing schoolwork and or doing assignments and listening to their excuses for not doing their homework. And I, I just think that kids are the most interesting creatures. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I just think 
that they're, they're just so interesting in the ways that they, they form as human beings. You've talked about the need to flip the conversation about education from being about what Indigenous parents and students are not doing to what is actually happening in the education system. How do you think we can change this perspective? Quite often, it's that shifting of the narrative. It's that Indigenous people aren't the problem, that the system's the problem. The system was never actually built. I mean, the education system did not come with consideration of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander learners within the classroom. The the idea of education primarily was to try and get the kids who were working on farms into into schools and stop being child labour. And and that's in an Australian context, but also, you know, in in England, removing them from the factories. So the whole idea that Indigenous kids or Indigenous parents are the problem within a Western education system is quite, um, it's ridiculous in the sense that when you look at the history of, of education for Indigenous peoples in Australia, you know, up until the 1970s, Indigenous kids could actually be expelled or excluded from the classroom if a white parent didn't want an Aboriginal child in their child's classroom. And so, you know, that's not so long ago. I think it's just really important that the system start actually looking back on itself and and trying to find ways in which, you know, they talk about creating an inclusive schooling culture and environment. Well, you're not going to do that if you don't actually look at what you're teaching as well and the ways that you're engaging with the people. The Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, better known as AITSL, sets out standards for what teachers should know and be able to do. The standard 1.4 is about strategies for teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, and 2.4 refers to understanding and respecting Indigenous people and promoting reconciliation. How are we doing in meeting those standards? There's a significant gap in Australian education, and here I flip the story in that the gap is um, education itself. There's a cultural gap. Non-Indigenous Australians don't know enough about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories, cultures, languages, or people. And so because of that, there is this massive gap of, you know, how do they know the student? They only know the student through a deficit lens, through the kind of um, data that NAPLAN throws out through the idea that the disengaged child is actually a disruptive child. They're disengaged because the content is not relevant to their lives. And so in that kind of sense, I mean, until there's true reflection and an understanding of of why things actually are the way they are and an actual acknowledgement and recognition of that, of how the, the kind of colonial processes, practices, and just that dominant ideology of the Aboriginal being lazy and uneducable, until that can actually be shifted, I I really think that schools are really going to struggle, and so are teachers, in how they're going to um, address the ATSL standards and and ACARA with the, the national curriculum. And this, this notion of cultural competency, I struggle with cultural competency as a term because we're all learners. 
even as an Aboriginal woman, I'm not an expert on all things Aboriginal. And so I know things about my mob and I might know bits and pieces from mobs where I've had the, the privilege of actually living on other people's lands. But my, my knowledge and understanding of, of specific, like now that I'm here in Victoria, I, I wouldn't, even, wouldn't even suggest that I have even a minimal understanding about Cory histories and cultures, apart from, you know, those very broad understandings such as um, Cooper and, and so forth. I've heard their names because I've looked at the history as part of my PhD and master's, not because of what I learned in school. I think there's a lot to be done and I, I really don't, I don't think there's an easy solution for it apart from, you know, black fellas, we're, we're very patient. I guess we're willing to wait for non-Indigenous Australia to kind of wake up to what needs to be done and to take the steps. But then we're also getting impatient because there, there's kind of this pivotal moment at this point of time where change is possible and we need to kind of ignite non-Indigenous people to, to learn so that change can actually happen. Are there any schools that are dealing particularly well with racism and the legacy of colonialism in a way that's making a real difference? I'm sure there are ones out there. I know of one school in um, North Queensland, um, Mossman area, where they're engaging with the community and have developed this amazing language program within the school. And so, of course, they've had to build those partnerships and relationships with community so that um, they can get language speakers into the schools. I guess I'm, I'll be coming from a Queensland perspective because of the fact that I know what's happening there. The community that I was working at before I came into higher education at Warrabinda, the primary state school there, at, just before I left, they were, they were looking at um, developing a language program as well. And just recently, I was excited to see that part of the, the language and um, older kind of learning on country um, processes has been extended and they're, they're now doing science on country um, with the language speakers. That's five years ago since I, I left the community and left teaching that um, even within a community where, I mean, it's an Indigenous community where I was. So there was, there was no lack of, of people to assist in this process. It was more, it was a laboured laboured process because of the fact that there was still contention around native title. The community itself is an old mission. And so 52 tribes were brought into this one space. And so then whose language would be privileged? And so there was a lot of um, consultation and negotiation that had to happen because of that historical context. And it's not a, a fast process either despite the fact that there were so many Indigenous people involved. Again, I'm not saying that these are easy things that, that schools and communities can do, but I also um, constantly point out to students that 
I'm teaching now, the, the education system isn't really set up for building those relationships and ensuring the sustainability of those sorts of programs. Warabinda's lucky in that where they're located, but all it takes is for one school leader or teacher to leave and there's the possibility that the, the actions and the relationships will will become disjointed and so you've got to start again. And particularly in the education system, teachers get three-year contracts, particularly if they go to Indigenous communities. Well, they do in Queensland. But they get three-year contracts to go to communities. And in that time, they'll get tenure so that at the end of the third year, they can transfer to anywhere that they want to. Community knows this. So why build relationships with teachers that are only there for three years? And so that influences what schools can actually do, what is actually achievable. I think a lot of parents assume that Indigenous studies are being taught to their children in primary school and in secondary school, that that's part of the curriculum and that the ki- their kids are learning what they never learnt at school. But is that the case? Well, I'd like to hope so. Um, I think there would be a lot more being taught now than what was even as myself when I was at school. Even if schools are only doing acknowledgement of country at assembly once a year, that's one thing more than what was there in the 1980s when I was at school. Even if within a history classroom, and I know in year 10, um, they now look at the rights and freedoms as as one of the um, the stu- case studies that um, they do in history. That wasn't looked at when, when I was at school. And I would believe that there's more things happening, but there's not enough. Indigenous education has always been seen as bolted on something in addition to, rather than it actually being built into education, which kind of harks back to when I said education itself wasn't set up for Indigenous kids. It's like we're we're constantly having to look in hindsight and, and kind of go, yeah, that wasn't covered. And teachers are teachers of habit. You know, we teach what we were taught. And if we didn't have it, it makes it extremely difficult for us to teach it. Because, oh my goodness, we have to actually model that we're lifelong learners and and do the work to build our own knowledge and understanding before we actually bring it to the classroom. And I'm sure teachers would um, say that they don't have the time now with what's considered a crowded curriculum. But I would say that you have to make the time. If you're really going to cater for all students in your classroom, it's part of our responsibility to teach and promote reconciliation. Now, everyone says that 2.4 is is an Indigenous-specific one, but if you actually look at it, it talks about the teacher promoting reconciliation for non-Indigenous and Indigenous students and actually is, in my way of interpreting it, I see it that we as classroom teachers have a responsibility to teach Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures, regardless if we've got Indigenous kids or not, and regardless if there's Indigenous kids at all in the school. That part of our job is to teach and work towards conciliation, at least, and a knowledge and understanding of what has happened so that kids can actually reflect on why things are the way they are now. Taking a step back, 
What do we need to be doing in universities to ensure that our students, especially our students who are training to be teachers, both know about Indigenous cultures and knowledges and are also confident to teach them? Um, Universities as a whole, it, it should just be compulsory within any degree that they offer that there's an Indigenous unit or course or subject. And in saying that, it's not actually about Aboriginal people or Indigenous peoples, it's actually about having the students reflect on self, of actually recognising the biases, the stereotypes and assumptions that they bring into whatever social interaction they have, so that when they go into the classroom, they can actually acknowledge that they may already be starting with a deficit when they look at an Indigenous student or, you know, any stereotype about any racial group, you know, they're they're there. We do know that many pre-service teachers are quite nervous about teaching Indigenous history, culture and knowledge. And and that's actually a, a valid sort of feeling that they probably should have in that that's kind of that recognition of what they didn't get when they were at school and in their own education. Um, but in saying that, the thing about universities is that we we are also, we're kind of charged with um, educating students to go out and create um, the world that we would like to live in. And so in doing that, we need to instill confidence within the um, students that we are sending out as um, classroom teachers to be able to actually do these things. And I guess for the way that we do that is by ensuring that every single course, so now I'm talking more about this idea of foregrounding, where the Indigenous student or the Indigenous parent or the Indigenous whatever is not seen as something foreign to what our teaching and learning is. For example, so in the English the subject English classroom, the introduction of a Indigenous text is not seen as we're doing an Indigenous text. It's seen as we're looking at this particular theme about, um, I don't know, identity. And and so therefore um, we're looking at it through that critical lens rather than we're looking at it as an Indigenous text on Indigenous representation of Indigenous identity. So it becomes part of all learning and not just particular learning. Yeah, yeah. So it just it just becomes this normal normalised, and I guess that's the whole thing, it becomes normalised. So there is no questioning and there is no resistance because it's just something that we do. It becomes just this common common understanding, this common reaction, and it's not something different. What What's your challenge to universities and to the broader education sector, and, and just including schools, and even to the dominant white culture in Australia, to how we really make substantial difference and change in the next 10 years? So first off, we actually get a current Indigenous education policy from government, that would be appreciated because the last one finished in 2018 and it has not been renewed or replaced yet. So that would be a starting point because 
that will actually inform what happens in schools. Um, the Universities Australia um, Indigenous Strategy, that finishes at the end of this year, which kind of made universities accountable. So that needs to be renewed and refreshed as soon as possible. And then um, with initial teacher education, it'd be nice if TEXA actually made it mandatory within initial teacher education that there was that standalone. So that in that sense, um, all of that upper echelon is um, putting a priority on Indigenous education. That then informs what happens within universities because then universities have to look at the ways in which they're, um, particularly in their initial teacher education courses, how they're addressing um, Indigenous education, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, the relationships that schools and teachers need to have with parents and community, the ways in which partnerships would actually develop between schools and community, or the organisations, the Aboriginal organisations that work within schools. So then that kind of formulates that. There needs to be a recognition or the ways in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures can be embedded within the curriculum itself and not just elaborations. So then that puts a focus on Indigenous curriculum. There needs to be an understanding, and this kind of goes back to the university and their initial teacher education, of shifting that idea that 1.4 and 2.4 is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and that's it. There are seven standards. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, parents and communities sit across all seven standards. They're represented in all seven standards. Yet, because there's an explicit naming of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in 1.4 and 2.4, everyone merely assumes that they're Aboriginal things. So there needs to be a shift. We need to teach it within initial teacher education to start changing that idea. So then our initial teachers go out and become classroom teachers. And so then if they've had this already guiding standalone and foregrounded education within their teaching preparation, then they can go out and affect change within the schools. And there needs to be more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within uh, universities, obviously, but particularly in initial teacher education. There is only, there's less than 15 of us Australia-wide in um, working within faculties or schools of education because education is such a um, violent space and has that history of, of um, detrimental effects on Indigenous kids. So we need to, to shift that and encourage more people within education. I mean, there's, there's something like 1.6% um, of um, the full-time teacher population that is um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. We need to try and tap into those and bring them over into higher education in some capacity, given the current climate and financial situation. You know, it doesn't have to be full time, but if we can find ways in which they could be incorporated within institutions to, to provide, because they're actually working at the coalface, so to speak, and they're the ones who are actually enacting um, the Australian curriculum and seeing how it's actually being presented at schools. So it'd be great to have some of their voices actually coming into 
universities. Thank you very much, Melita, for joining us on Talking Teaching this time around. You are very much welcome, Genevieve. Josh Cabillo is embarking on a PhD at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and hopes to eventually secure a job which will be focused around helping to improve the educational outcomes of Indigenous students. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining us on Talking Teaching today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Could you tell me a little bit about your experiences when you were a school student? Uh, My story began in Darwin because I was born and raised there. So, yeah, I had the pleasure of going to school on country, as they would say, because I'm a, a traditional owner of the Darwin area, the Larrakee people. Um, so, yeah, in, in that regard, I was, I was really fortunate. And then I also had um, pretty positive parents who were firm and you know, outlaying um, a pathway for me in education and saying uh, I need to, to make the most of it and, and go all the way through. So, yeah, that, in, in that regard, I had um, really good leadership um, but that's not to say it wasn't um, eventful along the way. You know, I had some challenges with um, teachers who, you know, questioned, um, you know, whether uh, I had been cheating on on um, assignments or, you know, questioning why why I was finishing so quickly and who I was copying off. And um, but you know, those those experiences were kind of um, overshadowed by the positive experiences that I did have with um, positive teachers who showed um, a lot of care and faith in me and, and really helped me along my journey. So, yeah, I've had both positive and negative experiences, but, yeah, as I said, um, the positive um, definitely outweighed the negatives. How did it make you feel when you had teachers responding to you like that in that way of, of questioning whether, in fact, you'd done your work? I definitely didn't have the uh, vocabulary to, to speak to it at the time. And, you know, when I did speak to my parents about it, they were pretty wild about it and, as you'd expect, I'd be knocking on the front school door and wanting to speak to people. And But I guess now that I've grown up and um, engaged with a bit more theory and education and understanding why things are the way they are and, you know, I can really understand what, what was happening in those settings. And, you know, they, these are real pivotal moments in our education which could really, um, you know, influence the trajectory that you're on. And, um, you know, and like I said before, it's really lucky that I had positive teachers and parents to to keep me on that right path. Otherwise, um, those experiences could really have disengaged me from the, from the school. I wanted to ask you, from your experience as, as a student and as a teacher, what do you think needs to happen in schools to really deal with, with the racism that so many people suffer? Oh, this is a, it may sound like a, an, an easy um, answer to it, and the, the easy answer would be just to say, well, we want Indigenous um, perspectives, knowledges um, and understandings embedded as a compulsory subject through, throughout the schooling system. Um, but as we know, uh, that's not the case. So, yeah, I think that's why we're finding, you know, so many people um, don't have that empathy and that understanding for Indigenous people and, and the stuff that they endure um, in society in the past and, and present. So, you know, if we were just to, uh, you know, rely on some of those um, knowledges I think we'd see a real shift in, in the way that people start to think about our um, Indigenous people here in Australia and there's, there's ab- absolutely no reason why we can't embed those knowledges. Um, and right now, you know, there's so much so much going on in the world. Indigenous knowledges are right at the forefront of our, um, our thought processes 
it just seems like a, the right time to start embedding those those knowledges because you know it just enhances the knowledges that are already been taught and it just really embeds um, learners in the local community the way we think about um, the places we inhabit um, interacting with the environment what we can do to sustain it so you know those two things that I can think of at the top of my head uh, are just already beneficial for um, indigenous learners and all, all learners as well so just two simple things. So is that what you mean when you talk about disrupting the curriculum? I spoke about disrupting curriculum through my my master's and, and I looked at the way that curriculum has only favoured one ideology and one knowledge system and you know since Cook and his crew arrived here we've we've embedded a, a, an education system that prepares essentially people for the workforce and as we know times have changed now there's so many more different job opportunities, the way that we see the world. We, we want to make sure that Indigenous voices are heard um, and, and different diverse voices are heard, but our current system doesn't allow for that. And I just think it's a really good time for us to yeah, start thinking about preparing students for a, for a world far greater than, than what we're experiencing at the moment. And, and far more complex. You obviously enjoy studying because you've now embarked on a PhD. What area are you studying? So I wish to work with some traditional owners from um, the Wurundjeri um, Nation and work with them in, in understanding what they believe the concept of country is to them. And then I wish to work with non-Indigenous teachers and improve their concepts of country and measure whether that improves um, the amount of Indigenous content that they teach. So it's this real holistic approach to um, making teachers understand that um, teaching Indigenous knowledges isn't, um, you know, such a, a big mystery if you're willing to take the step to engage with the local community and, 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 and further your, your thought processes around um, what we perceive to be place and, and knowledge production. So, yeah, hopefully i find something interesting from it. Well, good luck with that, Josh, and thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of Talking Teaching. Thanks for listening and take care. Mm-hmm.